Welcome to the Expand Mind podcast where I speak to creators, entrepreneurs and experts in their fields about concepts and topics that not only intrigue me but adds a sense of purpose and value to everyday life. I am Vay Naki, host on the Expand Mind podcast and in this episode I speak to CEO and co-founder of Crimson Education, Jamie Beaton. Jamie Beaton is a remarkably inspiring person that has accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. From graduating Harvard University, magna cum laude in 2016, two years ahead of schedule, to being one of the youngest in the world to be accepted to Stanford's Graduate School of Business at age 20. Jamie is also the youngest ever recipient of the R.J. Miller Award, in which he was top 10% of his class having simultaneously begun his PhD as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. Jamie is an absolutely amazing person with so much of insight but before we continue with this episode my request to you is to please support the podcast by following us on social media at expandable_mind and give us a five star rating and review on your preferred podcast streaming platform. Thanks Jamie for being on the Expandable Mind podcast really appreciate you uh, coming on having the time to spend with me um and sharing your wisdom and knowledge um your story is crazy crazy inspiring tell tell us about your origin story uh the fantastic brand crimson education that you've built and the journey that you went on uh how did it all kick off for you so it all began in new zealand uh and growing up uh my mother really had this big focus in education she had an M- mba degree a law degree a uh, commerce degree a charting accounting qualification chartered accountant qualification and so every day I'd grow up and on my bedroom wall would be her you know four different diplomas and she would kind of always drill into me this idea that education was this mission critical path to the future and when I was about 3 or 4 I really started to find this passion for uh school and then um really from as early as I can remember you know academics is kind of inextricably linked with my identity I love both learning I I love the sort of competitive thrill of trying to do well in academics and um Uh initially my aspirations were to stay with New Zealand and probably do something like medicine at a local university. But when I was 14 I met this boy called Ben Cornfeld who got into Yale. Uh and he was the ducks of our school, a really inspiring guy to me, and he said that I should consider thinking about global opportunities. So, uh I shifted my focus to uh trying to prepare for these awesome universities in the US like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Princeton and stuff in the UK uh, where I ultimately applied to Cambridge. I spent the next 4 years kind of going hard uh, in the application process applied to all those different schools got into them and then um launched Crimson off the back of this experience of you know uh, what was uh you know sort of my life to date of pretty high intensity academics and the idea behind Crimson is to help guide ambitious students all around the world to reach their dream universities help them with all the different academics and extracurriculars they need to thrive on the world stage uh and now you know a decade and we've sent thousands of kids to these amazing universities many of our alumni are now working at top wall street banks many have raised you know millions of venture capital in silicon valley and the journey's really just getting started uh so yeah that that's a bit about the, the origin story and background of crimson yeah and that's amazing um speaking about identity and now this relates to a personal question what do you think made you successful in the context of how you scaled up crimson education and also in the process of scaling up crimson what is the initial vision what what did you have in mind when you started when you started crimson So as far as personality traits I think the most defining uh, trait that I have probably is I just think I probably love education uh more than most people in the space. So, you know, f- for fun I just love to do uh, more studies. Uh I just wrapped up another program over the weekend called the Schwartzman Scholarship Program and um you know, since I was young I always thought about, you know, how can I make myself 
a better quality student. You know, I, I, I just love learning um, both the intellectual aspect of that intrinsic motivation and also the intrinsic impact it has in your life. So I, I genuinely, you know, I'm obsessed with learning and I think it's so powerful for students. And so when I come at the space, um, I feel like I really understand the students we're supporting. I get their ethos, I get their pain points. And so does our founding team. And so that I think has been our, our biggest advantage. Um, and definitely, you know, I mean, it's not rocket science, like the way the school system works, but I think there are subtle nuances for re really ambitious kids. Uh, and, you know, Crimson's understanding of these students helps to really transform them and, you know, take them to their full potential. So I think that would be one trait uh, for sure. And the second thing, you know, relating to that is just learning agility. You know, I started Crimson, you know, when I, when I was 18. Um, these days we've got about 700 full-time staff, you know, thousands of mentors around the world. And um, it's been a real learning journey at every stage, full of plenty of mistakes, but also plenty of wins too. And, um, you know, that uh, learning agility, I think, is just critical. So that, that two traits, um, I think, for sure. What was your, what was your second question? Uh, the second question was, how did this uh, vision, what is the vision of Crimson Education oh, from the beginning? Yeah, from the beginning. Okay. So when I first started Crimson, uh, my vision was really to help ambitious students from international countries to get all the support they needed to get into their dream universities. Um, and that was uh, really a manifestation of the journey that I'd just been through from really age, you know, five, six, seven, all the way through to 18. Um, in that journey, you know, there are many uh, stakeholders, teachers, guidance, counselors, online resources. Some of it's good, but a lot of it gives you, you know, inaccurate advice. And this is pretty high stakes in my opinion. So, you know, my idea was really to create uh, one source of truth where students get all the comprehensive mentorship, guidance, resources they need to make this happen. Um, and I think in this environment, you know, students need really the best possible support. So my focus at Crimson was always to have the best results, have the premium, you know, uh, capabilities. Because uh, I don't think this is an area where people want to compromise and, you know, get a Nissan. You know, they want to get the full uh, support they need to make sure they've got the best possible competitive advantage. And that's kind of the ethos that I had coming in. Um, so there was this focus on, you know, premium quality, premium outcomes, best at everything we do type thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of what we really invested behind. And then I guess um, uh, that the you know, aspirations that I've had definitely have, uh, grown as we've as we've continued to you know uh, support more and more students around the world and we've seen more areas we can guide them and improve and help them you know uh, augment their learning journey um, and a notable kind of inflection point in the vision was the launch of our uh, you know fully accredited online high school Crimson Global Academy and this is really built for you know uh, today's generation of ambitious young people who often can handle more subjects extra APs extra A levels kind of like the extra IG math that I think you took uh, we were just talking about where um, the traditional school system is kind of underserving them, they can't go as quickly as they want, and we can use a lot of the same competencies we've built in uh, college counselling to support in that school. And I recently finished a PhD at Oxford looking at what drives student outcomes and student satisfaction in the online learning environment for this purpose. So I guess um, the vision's been pretty consistent, but we've, we've you know grown in, in, in the scale of it over time um, and uh, continue to you know think very ambitiously about where we can take take Crimson to. Yeah, that, that's a brilliant, amazing. Um, I'm out of words. Uh, you could put it that way. Um, <laughs> congratulations on your PhD. Something I'm always want, I will want to do in the future. Um, amazing stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, you definitely should. It's a great experience. It's uh, like an academic marathon. Very fun. Speaking about that, why don't you enlighten us on the how? The, how does Crimson Education work? Coming from the CEO himself, let's let's dive into it. Yeah, sure. So a student will come along to us and we'll really assess their academics, extracurriculars, 
uh, leadership achievements, et cetera, to date. We'll understand a bit about their ambitions, uh, what, what they're thinking about for their future, or maybe they're not quite sure yet, uh, as well as any insights the parents have. From there, we'll really design a comprehensive team around them of tutors, mentors, uh, strategists, people like me that have been through and lived this experience firsthand that can really guide the student through all these choices from what subjects to take, what extracurriculars to choose, what summer programs, you know, how to go about the applications, where to apply, interview preparation, and give you all of these, uh, you know, elite mentors at every stage to make that all possible, as well as giving you access to our Crimson app, which is really the tech platform that, you know, underpins all of this, uh, including, you know, thousands of videos, other resources and tools students can access. So um, that kind of end-to-end uh, you know, SWAT team of mentors is really um, the Crimson offering. Uh, and, you know, that team will work with you, uh, you know, side-by-side over these high school years or even earlier to help get into that, you know, top university that our students aspire towards. Amazing. Uh, now let's dive into your book. Amazing. Another thing I should congratulate you on. Amazing book. I've read it twice now. Oh, good. I'm, um, glad, you, I'm so, glad you like it. You know, first read is good, but the second read, that means you, you mean business. That's good. Yeah, the second read was actually my note-taking uh, side of things. So I'd recorded every single detail that I wanted to like, found valuable. I was like, okay, short points. I need to extract the most from Jamie's mind here. <laughs> um, yeah, but let's let's dive deep in. Now, your book is all about the secrets on gaining admission to the top universities in the world. Uh, what are some of these secrets? So you said secrets in part of the title of the book. What are, secret, what are the secrets and how does Crimson... Um, use these secrets to actually help achieve students to get into their dream schools? Great question. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you um, one example that I think stands out quite a bit, and, and I call this class spam in the book. And the idea behind class spam is that students should really try and take as many additional subjects as they can. Um, I took 10 A-levels, most students do three or four. And the idea behind the class spam strategy is that when you're applying for these top universities, uh, there are many of these you know, fluffy factors. What are your extracurriculars? What do you write your essays about? And all these things are super important. You should optimize them too. But at the nuts and bolts, you know, this is an academic you know, game about you know, the quality of your academics versus the other students in your school. And uh, you know, when you, a lot of students have a lot of extra capacity because some of these subjects can be done quite efficiently. And so if, you, if you're one of these academic students who have a lot of you know, skill in this area, take a lot of extra subjects, start early, don't wait till you're 16 to begin your A-levels or don't wait till you're you know, 16 to begin your APs. Start knocking these things out quite early. You know, take those extra subjects. Um, you, for example, rather than doing exams you know, over a year, like, a, like an AS subject, uh, I did a lot of my um, AS subjects in business studies and economics just in six months. Um, and that really helps you to get through more content faster. By the time you finish high school, if you've just done a lot more credentials than your next peer, but you have, you know, you've got your A stars, you've got a lot of different subjects, hopefully you enjoyed the ride, that's going to give you a big edge. So when I applied and got into all these schools, part of my, you know, competitive advantage is that I had way more subjects than other kids in, in, in my school. And the funny thing about the strategy is a lot of admissions officers, they almost, they're in denial about it. You know, you ask, you ask like Harvard admissions, should I take extra subjects? They tell you, no, you know, don't worry about it. Just take your normal school load. You know, we just want to see who you are. But then we look at who they actually admit. And they don't really follow what they say, you know, you know, publicly, really, in terms of who they admit. Like, we've sent, you know, now about, we've had more than 500 offers to the Ivy League from around the world. And a lot of the students getting into places like Stanford and Harvard and Princeton have taken a lot of extra subjects using this kind of class spam approach. So that's one good example, which I love because 
the advice you get from your school uh, is often biased because they don't want to have to provide all these extra subjects for you. It's kind of very difficult and cumbersome for the school. Then the university wants to try to uh, remove some of the, you know, the hysteria that might come if they just said, hey, the more subjects, the better. Um, but, you know, we're able to actually give the students the truth they need, which is actually, this is an area you can lean into and give you all the support you need to make it happen. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of the secrets uh, for, for, for your listeners today. Yeah. Um, one implicit idea I took out from your book, and you, I think you've touched on it a little bit. You took 10 A-levels. Amazing. I'm doing three to four, A -le four A-levels, basically. Um, I'm finding it tough. I'm having sleepless nights. Um, you did chemistry, bio, and physics. I'm only doing the two sciences, which is already, again, sleepless nights. Did you not receive any negative comments on like, oh, he's just trying to show off or... Um, why is he doing that? What's the purpose of it? Um, did you not receive any negative feedback from that? And how do we break free of those expectations from society? Yeah, sure. So I think um, that's an interesting question. I definitely had people in uh, New Zealand who, you know, would in my high school who would uh, ask me, you know, why don't you just take the same number of subjects as everybody else? What's the point of these extracurriculars? You know, why are you trying so hard at school? Like, why do you care so much? Why don't you chill out a little bit? And a lot of the, but at its core, a lot of this narrative comes from a place of, uh, you know, uh, feeling uh, that this is in some way challenging the norm this, that student is living in or that teacher is sort of teaching within. And I think um, you've got to recognize that plenty of good advice is shared in the world, but plenty of advice comes from people who have their own personal agenda here. And so if I'm just taking my four A levels and all my classmates are doing their four as well, you know, they don't have to worry as much, right? Because we're all applying to schools on the same footing. But as soon as I start accelerating, taking more subjects, you know, it introduces a competitive strategic choice for them. Like, do they have to also do more subjects or, you know, are they going to stick to their four A levels? And so it's, you know, it's easier for everyone if everyone just chills. But, you know, my, my philosophy at Crimson is not to like let my kids uh, just sort of amble along. Um, but rather to put their foot on the gas as much as possible. And not every kid's going to like do extra subjects. Maybe some students like you will do an amazing project like this incredible podcast you've built, and that will be a very nice leadership project. But whatever it is, I encourage my kids to really push ahead. So yeah, I'd say all my life, I, type, I, I tend to receive this type of uh, feedback. Like I went to business school, for example, at Stanford when I was 22. Most people uh, do that when they're like in their late 20s uh, or early 30s. And there's this kind of weird word on the street, like go to business school and you're older, you've got these like business lessons, et cetera. It'll be more impactful. But I think it's very simple. You know, the earlier you acquire these skills that you might get in an MBA, the more years you can apply them for. And um, I found them very valuable at Crimson. So I guess I, you know, over time, I basically just ignore or filter out this type of advice that is synced to basically, you know, kind of anti-competition, anti-ambition hysteria, which definitely exists in some countries like New Zealand, I think. Um, but, you know, the more you surround yourself with a group of people, uh, which is why I like the Crimson team, you know, a lot of mentors around a student that encourages them to just aim for the stratosphere, aim for their full potential uh, and not get anchored by kind of this negative drawback in their, in their school culture, uh, the better. So, yeah, definitely I, I, I encounter it a lot, but I, I, I tend to sort of filter it out these days instinctively. But I recognize that when you're younger, when you're in high school, et cetera, some of this narrative can be very impressionable. It can feel kind of negative, annoying. But, um, you know, you've just got to have that tough skin and keep pushing. Yeah. Um, and part of society is our parents. Um, they now your your as you mentioned, your mom was a big part of your your journey. She left the the law degree, the her degrees on the wall in front of you all the time. Um, and and atomic habits, it's it's part of the cues, visual cues that you always have to 
um, keep in mind and you kind of strive towards it. And I can understand why you've uh, pursued education in the way you have. It's kind of a motivation, something that I, I should actually start doing, keep my parents' um, certificates or their the qualifications on my wall. Yeah. Um, but parents are often pushing their children in a direction that they wanted, not what the child necessarily wants. How would you advise parents to avoid being that that type of parent? Um, for instance, let's just say an individual wants to go study economics at University of Chicago instead of uh, Harvard, and their parents are like, no, Harvard is the best, and that, that idea. Um, what advice would you give to parents to not be that parent? That's a really good question. <clears throat> so I think um, at its core the student isn't always right and the parent isn't also always right either. And so I don't think the correct conclusion is just let the kid do whatever they want. Neither is the conclusion, you know, let parents just like boss the kid around. I think the reality is, um, first of all, everyone needs accurate information about what's the kid's actual academic ability right now. I think sometimes families get a bit disconnected where the parents have this perception the kid is, you know, really strong in certain subjects, but they actually got some gaps or vice versa. The, the, the parent is more skeptical of the kid's potential than actually they should be. So the first thing is, I think, get everyone on the same page about what we're working with and, and how much we can grow this and what the kid's foundations are like. And then secondly, I think a lot of parents are out of sync with the most exciting job opportunities in the world stage. So we've got our alumni heading to work at Google DeepMind, uh, working at Tesla, you know, working for Waymo, the autonomous driving company, working for banks like Goldman Sachs, McKinsey. You know, a number of alumni have launched, as I said, these multi-million dollar startup ventures in the, the crypto space. And I've got another founder from Stanford who's working in the dating industry now uh, with her startup. It's very cool. Um, so I think that you need to help the student and parent understand where is the world heading? What kind of career pathways are actually exciting to build? Because a lot of stu a lot of parents have these kind of outdated views about, you know, what the most attractive industries are, which are, which are really quite backward looking. Um, you know, I'm in law school, so I can say this, but a lot of the a lot of parents think, you know, law school is super attractive. I think law school is attractive for some people, but there's a lot of drawbacks to it. And many of the kids that are motivated by certain things like making money who might think being a lawyer is a good pathway should actually be considering other pathways, for example, like, say, banking or investing instead, um, as, as an example. So I think the second thing is align the student and parent around reality, right, you know, outcomes. So once everyone understands the, the, the child's ability, the, the outcomes, um, then it's really a question of how we all get on the same team to run at this. Because I think when the students and parents are pulling in different directions, uh, that, that tends to also create friction and, you know, creates negativity. Whether it's much better, in, you know, in my life, my mum played this very supportive role of cheering me on and championing me and kind of getting behind me, giving me that, giving me that emotional support. And that's kind of where Crimson can come along and help take you from diagnosis through to, uh, you know, results um, and, and bring along the whole journey, the parents, the students, et cetera, too. And then I think you have that kind of optimal outcome. So I, I think, I think um, yeah, I, I definitely don't think you just tell let the kid do whatever they want because, you know, I played a lot of Call of Duty in high school. I still play a bit now. And, um, you know, modern video games, for example, they're so addictive that if you just let a kid do whatever they want to do, uh, you know, and they just bump into a bunch of friends who are pretty chill people, nothing wrong with that, you could easily have a kid that has immense talent careening into this kind of, uh, you know, unproductive space where they, where they lack achieving their full potential. So so I, I do think the conventional wisdom that there's these kind of tiger parents who are so strict and, you know, they're horrible and then you need to just let the kid run, run you know, run free. I think that also is a lot of weakness too. Like you need to find a middle ground. And I think uh, that's probably a balance of the Western and Eastern parenting philosophies. We'll call it the crimson philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I think 
that that sums the overall view of like the 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 equilibrium parent if i can put it like that having the, the equilibrium parent in the world uh, but before we go any further um if you're finding any of the ideas interesting in jamie's talk today uh and we're attempting to gain as much wisdom from jamie in this limited time but of course if you want to really go into deep into jamie's mind please invest in the copy of the accept accepted um it's a brilliant book, read it twice, as I mentioned to Jamie before. Um, so yeah, congratulations, Jamie, again, on the book. Um, I'm just curious to know, when did you decide to write the book and how did you find the time? You just mentioned you can play Call of Duty, you run a multi-million dollar company. Where do you find the time to write a book? First of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate the shout out. And I'm honestly, I'm just really glad you, you enjoyed the book. Um, you know, I, I tried to write a really uh, no BS guide to what you need to know to be successful um, in, in the high school landscape. And, uh, you know, it's something that is a really good primer for Crimson Kids to read as they go about their journey to kind of get some of these basics down. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully uh, some of the, you know, uh, is, insights I've garnered can be, can be, you know, really embodied in the journey. Now, uh, as far as, you know, when I wrote this book, I actually um, wrote it during COVID. I was based in Sydney during these lockdowns and I had these weekends where I, I had my calls to some students and stuff, but basically, you know, I was a bit more free than I usually would be because of, of COVID sort of shutting down a lot of activity. And, um, you know, I found myself uh, really quite excited to take a lot of this knowledge and insights I'd garnered for almost a decade of admissions and bottom them up into a book that I could give to, you know, all these students around the world that would really you know, speed up their learning. So rather than giving some of this advice, you know, a hundred times, I could get them to read some of these foundational principles and, and build that good uh, starting block. So um, I guess over, over you know, this period of time I spent in Sydney, I wrote the draft and it flowed out quite naturally because a lot of these insights I've been working on for many years. Um, and I had a really nice, uh, you know, actually Crimson alumni, or rather parent of one of our alumni who, um, uh, you know, had her daughter got into Princeton and she had a lot of experience writing books. Um, she'd released, I think, nine novels. Uh, she helped me uh, with the, you know, interesting work of finding publishers and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, we, we publish with Wiley, which is a great education publisher. And um, yeah, it's been a really fun learning curve and challenge. So I guess that's how we did the book. Then as far as this question about kind of time management in general, um, I guess I would answer this through an example. And the example I'll give you is uh, PhDs. So, um, you know, PhDs theoretically are like these five-year-long, extremely challenging, time-sucking activities, you know, which are really fun and rigorous, but also uh, just take a lot of time. But I think a lot of students, um, they really fall victim to the psychological bias where they, they're told something will take five years, so they make it take five years. Um, and I think in my, in my kind of uh, life, I, I tend to just really think about what it is that you actually need to do to get this thing done, and how long does that actually take? Um, and so uh, in the case of, for example, the PhD, okay, well, we're writing about 60,000 words. We've got to do some independent novel research. We need to do a literature review. Um, you know, these are some of the things I, I need to get through. So um, how long does that actually need to take? And also, you know, uh, here, here's an example. In the first year of the PhD, a lot of my peers would spend a year thinking about, you know, uh, what research question to ask for, you know, what, uh, what techniques do I need to learn before I begin the PhD so I'm like equipped. A lot of this, you know, for example, I just skipped because I came in with, you know, three very clear ideas for what I might want to research. I spoke to my PhD advisor, I zoned in on one, uh, and then I really uh, jumped to that really quickly, got, got it moving, um, used some of the resources I had, like data that I could access to do different analysis, and got, got that thing moving. So I guess in the case of the PhD, it's, it's one example where I was able to get a lot of time efficiency relative to a lot of folks 
Uh, and you know, I didn't, for example, finish the PhD super fast in terms of years spent. It still took me, you know, three, three or so years, but I was able to do that alongside of other, you know, commitments like Crimson, um, and do that quite efficiently. So I think I would just give folks the, uh, important principle that the recommended time guideline for anything, A-levels, extracurriculars, writing a book, doing a PhD, a lot of these things are a bit wavy and, you know, you could focus and, and compress that time by 70, 80% if you have the right approach. And that's something that I've sort of taken to many areas of my life. Um, I also just try and really outsource, uh, you know, things that, I, that I'm not good at or, you know, hire folks at Crimson that have better skills in certain areas than me. So for example, um, you know, uh, a strength that one of my team members have would say be in uh, software engineering. Um, where, you know, building a good technology team to help bring some of these products to life faster is much better than if, you know, uh, I try and sort of learn these skills myself. So as much as possible within a business context, I try and uh, delegate and build capabilities to enable us to keep going faster and faster at, at Crimson. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking about time management, I, I think I would find it very interesting as I'm building an expandable mind and trying to scale it up in that sort of way. Um, how did you build Crimson while you were at Harvard, number one, we all know that Harvard is extremely uh, demanding in time um, and you and achieving amazing marks. So I, I think you were come laude day there um, at, at Harvard, which, how did you actually do that? And on top of that, you built a business that's worth multi-millions today. That's a great question. Um, okay, so... The first thing is, I would I would say that was very hard at Harvard. I think um, it was it was very challenging. So I I really had some a lot of sleepless nights there because I basically was doing my applied math economics Harvard degree, and then I was um, and I would you know work throughout the day, and then Crimson everyone would wake up in the New Zealand Australia time zone, and then I'd be kind of grinding on Crimson into the early hours of the night, um, and then I would have all these problem sets due, and I was taking six classes a semester rather than four. And I was taking these, you know, advanced graduate level statistics and math and economics classes. And so that was a lot, actually. Uh, it definitely, I, I was actually back for my five-year reunion recently and walking around campus, I, I was like, wow, you know, this was, I really grinded during these years. This was sort of like go, 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 go time intensity for me. So I, I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, it wasn't chill by any stretch and I had to make a lot of active sacrifices. So for example, you know, uh, I wouldn't recommend this, but I probably went to like you know, I can probably count on my hand the number of college parties that I went to. I made some incredible friendships at Harvard that continue to be my, you know, great buddies to this day. But I wasn't out there, you know, several times a week going to, you know, parties around campus and, you know, uh, drinking and, you know, doing this stuff. I was really focused on uh, my academics, uh, my time at Tiger and, and building Crimson. And, and I was very clear about what I wasn't going to do. And I was able to get a lot of efficiency by cutting those things out quite dramatically. So, so that, that really gives some of the insights as to, as to the time at Harvard. I had two incredible co-founders, uh, we still, still have, uh, Chandra and Fungjo, who uh, really helped me uh, to uh, navigate some of those you know, moments. They were also going through university at the same time. So if I was having my exam period, you know, my co-founders would cover some weight, vice versa, and we would tag team our way through it. And then as we you know, one by one started graduating from these programs, we got even more time and capacity up our sleeves to keep going. Um, but definitely it was, it was a, a big hustle. But also I'd say it was very foundational to Crimson's success because we you know, understood these high performing colleges. We had a lot of mentors from Harvard and other top universities and, um, you know, it really helped to develop our, our reputation and, and, and knowledge of, of the student's pain point going through these experiences. So I think, um, I wouldn't change it for the world, but definitely it was a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and speaking about how 
again, we're going back to the scaling of uh, Crimson Education. Those beginning years for you, you spoke about outsourcing um, things that you don't know. How did it actually work for you? Because you number one, a college kid. Um, you in college. Uh, you're trying to get through, number one, your studies, trying not to fail the year. Um, and on top of that, how did you actually manage the money side of things, especially when it came to Crimson Education? How did you scale it up at such a rapid rate? So I guess... Um uh interesting okay so how, how did i scale it up so the first thing is i think we had a very clear focus around what we were going to do uh which was you know college admissions guidance for ambitious students initially from new zealand the world's best universities and uh when we started the business we did what we call bootstrapping where basically we didn't raise external capital um we uh served our families we would take in tuition revenue we would use this uh, th these funds to then go ahead and keep growing, uh, and you know we would really we really wanted to establish that clear product market fit, make sure people loved our service, and then kind of grow from there. Now, uh, once we had established that really clear traction, um, I then started to raise venture capital funding, and I think we raised our first one mil USD uh, near my freshman end of freshman year of college, and that came together from a bunch of really amazing US based investors uh, like Tiger as well as some folks from New Zealand, uh, some different angel investors. And raising that capital helped us to expand a bit more aggressively, open in Australia, open in the UK, uh, and begin begin to take Crimson global. Um, and so I think in our case, uh, we're very disciplined with how we use our you know, resources, um, but we definitely love to, you know, uh, where, where it makes sense, um, bring in more resourcing uh, to help us supercharge that growth vision once we've got a very clear strategy. But we are quite focused about you know when and why we we raise capital to to achieve that growth. Um, so I think uh, we have tried to maintain a really strong focus on frugality and and, and discipline about capital allocation, uh, while also being willing to raise capital uh, and um, you know go after more aggressively those interesting opportunities. This podcast episode was kindly sponsored by the Crimson Youth Fund, which is a philanthropic arm of Crimson Education. This fund supports student-led events and projects via funding for resources that enable them to make a lasting impact on their community. The reason why I chose Crimson Youth Fund to be a sponsor on this podcast episode is because not only have they helped me in resources for the podcast, but because they've helped in creating content that can inspire change. To find out more about them, visit the link in the description box below. Yeah, to students out there and teenagers around about my age, um, what advice would you give to uh, to us both trying to start out a business? So some of them may have not started out businesses as yet, but they're contemplating or procrastinating about it. Um, how did they take that leap forward? And what advice would you give them to starting a business in this very rigorous and tough market that's out there? So the first thing that I would say, and I, and I, I mean this, um, uh, I guess I'm going to bring some, I guess, you know, an, a, a sort of data-driven view on this is that, I think in high school, you really need to make sure you focus on academics first and foremost, uh, first, second, third. And the reason why I say this is that I have seen many entrepreneurial students that get so excited about entrepreneurship, they almost forget through the high school academics and they do these different projects and initiatives and they have like five different startups they've tried to create. Um, and I've seen a number of times where these students uh, lose focus in academics. They don't get the grades they want. 
they want to get into schools like Stanford or Oxford. It doesn't happen because they basically were too distracted by these fun startup ventures, which, you know, can become so exciting. It's almost like as engaging as playing a, a game or something, um, you know, building, you know, building like one of these ventures. And uh, I think that the first priority in high school is you have to get good grades because if you don't have those good grades, it's going to really impact your ability to get into many of these top universities because that's first and foremost the criteria. So I think in life, you know, there are some times you want to go quick, but there are other times where you cannot forget the fundamentals. And so in high school, my obsessive focus wasn't trying to create a great business in high school. It was getting my A-level A-stars, getting ducks of my school, winning those different academic awards. And that was what I was obsessed about. And it wasn't until later on that I shifted my focus to entrepreneurship. But in high school, I had that academic discipline. And I, you know, I say that, sometimes I say it to a student and they don't quite take it in. And then you know, I tell them two or three times. Uh, and then even then, sometimes they have this entrepreneurship bug and it just sort of consumes your academic focus. And I think that's what you've got to be very careful of because entrepreneurship is kind of addictive. And, you know, that's good. It's really fun once you're free and liberated to run at it. But I think you can't let it compromise your academics early on in your life. The second thing that I would say is that high school entrepreneurship is very difficult because you have a lot of commitment. So it's hard for you to raise capital during high school and it's hard for you to balance all these different things. And so I recommend being very realistic with the scope of the initiatives you create. And, you know, I'm an ambitious guy, right? So like this advice to a, don't focus on it, and B, be realistic. Doesn't sound like normal advice that I would give, but it's very important to know when to do certain things. In college, really happy to encourage kids to go far more aggressive on these types of ventures. I, I've invested in you know, multiple Crimson alumni now uh, who've launched ventures um, uh, in different spaces while, while in college, and I really back the ability of high-performing students to go through college and launch these ventures, but I think it is challenging too in high school. In high school, I launched a number of ventures, one was like an iPad stand business for cars, but I, I didn't spend that much time on it. The second was this, um, it was almost like a party business where I would I would host events at my house. I would rent DJs, security guards, and then, you know, I'd charge for admissions tickets. Um, and, um, you know, it was actually quite the, quite the cash cow. Um, uh, and I would juice that with yeah. some poker earnings as well. But basically, you know, so I'm, I'm all down for some startup type ventures in high school. But I think uh, that that focus needs to be needs to be correct because I genuinely think it's super hard to create a compelling business in high school that's like a runaway success. I think it's I think it's better to you know choose like a social enterprise project, choose a leadership initiative. Uh, you know, for example, your podcast is amazing. Um, things like this where you can control how much time it takes, you can get some good results, and you know you're not also making promises to some investor that you have to maintain while you're doing all your studies. So I think uh, that will be sort of my my advice on high school entrepreneurship. You know, definitely possible, but you've got to be very careful about it. Yeah. Uh, and before we go, in the remaining time we have left, I would love to, re to speak about uh, setting goals, something that I think a lot of us struggle with and a lot of us think that it's total BS. Uh, but before we continue, I want to read out this quote that came from renowned organizational psychologist Adam Grant on Jamie's book. Uh, no one knows more about how to get into top schools than Jamie. Um, this book is filled with actionable advice from for improving your odds. And there we have it, folks. It comes from renowned organizational psychologists. So invest in a copy. It's worth it. It's It'll become like an asset, basically, for your life. So... Jamie, you've been to seven. You have seven university qualifications, going on to eighth with law, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you, CEO, we've mentioned that of a multi-million-dollar company. Now, time management is associated also with gold, uh, associated with guilt, um, and you often feel guilty whereby you're like, okay, I'm one to start up, and this is kind of 
going towards entrepreneurship, but also academics at the same point. Um, you struggle to like find whereby you're not going to be guilty of your time. So I may be starting a startup today and like, oh, I'm not spending enough time on my academics uh, or I'm not spending enough time on my health or in that type of way. Um, my curiosity would be, how do we find that equilibrium in our time to, to know when we're not feeling guilty about spending our time? That's a really interesting question. Hmm. I think the first thing that I would say is there are certain time traps, uh, which I write about in the book, activities that aren't very productive, um, that, you know, can spend a lot, you can spend a lot of time on. So one example I would give, I was involved in this theater, theater club production in New Zealand, uh, and it took hours and hours every Sunday. And I was some, you know, mediocre role. I was like a tree or like a guard or something. Um, and basically it just took all this time and the return is very low. So you need to be very scientific about, you know, when you allocate time to what and like what the clear outcomes are of that time, something that you get better and better at as you do entrepreneurship. The second thing is you need to be aware of what types of things can really blow things up. So, you know, for example, let's take a game like League of Legends. I've never played League of Legends. And the reason why is it seems like it's super addictive. It seems like kids who play this game genuinely get so sucked in and it burns a ton of time. And I know, for example, that when I buy a new Call of Duty game, as I install that disc, it's 200 hours of my life just burnt once I install this game because it's just, it's too engaging, right? Um, and so I think you need to have a lot of self-awareness around, you know, uh, how you're going to spend your time and, and what the implication of your decisions are on the time you have available. And, you know, uh, I'm all for doing things very ambitiously. I like to jam my schedule full of different uh, you know, missions and objectives and, you know, upcoming things to do. Um, but I, I think I maintain a relatively good sense of how much time do things actually take and where can these things go careening off. Um, so that, that's some of the techniques that I use um, uh, to, you know, to, to achieve that focus. As far as that feeling of guilt, that's an interesting one. Um, I think you need to really be careful about that because you don't want to be, you don't want to be motivated because you feel a sense of guilt. You want to be motivated by positive emotions. Otherwise, I think you, you're going to get a bit, you know, funny psychologically, uh, you won't be feeling so great about yourself. So I think you want to be motivated by wins. I think that's really exciting. So how do you break whatever you're doing into small, actionable wins? So for me, wins were getting first in a subject, you know, um, getting a grade in a test that was top of my class, uh, you know, finishing a next A-level achievement. And those wins kind of give you that, that endorphin, that rocket fuel to keep going to the next milestone. And I feel like sometimes if you don't have a win for a while, you start to kind of careen in the ocean, like a sail getting blown around. Um, but when you have those, uh, you know, momentous wins that break up that, that hard work, that hard slog, it kind of gives you the motivation to get to the next step. So I think whatever you're doing, you need to kind of architect these different opportunities for wins in, in what you're doing so you can feel that psychological sense of momentum and purpose and keep going. And I'll give you a really simple example. You know, running isn't particularly, you know, fun for many. But when you run uh, on a Peloton bike, for example, they break up your run into almost like a video game where there's leaderboards comparing how fast you're going. There's different milestones for how quickly you're running. There's like an instructor cheering you on. And it's kind of hard to get off that bike uh, during the run because you really feel like you're part of this team pushing you forwards. Similarly at Crimson, you know, part of the reason why I recommend a lot of different tutors is, you know, A, it's going to speed you up, but it's also, it's an, it's an accountability mechanism. And when I was in my last year of high school, you know, it was hard for me to get up at like 8 a.m. on a Saturday, um, but I had my tutor, John, coming to my house physically there, and I could, you know, I couldn't avoid him. So he knocks on my front door, I'm feeling, I just want to lie in bed and just chill, but I got to get up because John's there and it makes me keep performing. So as much as possible, I recommend also 
putting in place those types of four self-control mechanisms. When you're a high school student, Crimson's great for this because we, we do kind of force you to get through each milestone. But I also recommend that psychological uh, you know, design of your of your ambitions. So you keep getting those wins along the way. So there are a couple of, of different techniques that I that I would advocate. Yeah. Um, now I'd like to just branch off into a section of the podcast where we speak about a little bit about burnout. Jamie, you did ten A levels. We've mentioned that before. The audience now knows it that you highly ambitious. You're a genius, a living genius. That, that's how I would phrase it. Um, and. How did you prevent yourself from getting burnout? Did you ever suffer through burnout? You've done, you've pursued education in a, a rather remarkable way. So how do you prevent yourself from, what techniques do you have in your life that prevent you from getting burnt out? Great question. Let me think about this a little bit. So I think the first thing is you need to have different support systems that give you emotional stamina. Uh, in my life, that would be, you know, my partner, It'll be my family, some of my close friends. It'll be some of my hobbies that let me take my mind off the intensity of work at points. Actually, for me, doing extra studies is a, is a sort of emotional uh, pillar that I have because I find, you know, ex like doing this program, the Schwartzman program that I finished over the weekend, uh, Master of Global Affairs, it's actually very enjoyable and it gives me a breath of fresh air and some, you know, new frameworks to think about the world. Uh, and some, you know, extra kind of motivation uh, and, and and resilience. So I think whatever you're motivated by, you need to really understand that and then have this kind of mixing pot of different uh, kind of emotional anchors. So I think about, you know, you're like this boat, you know, the wind is blowing aggressively, the, you know, waves are crashing, uh, the sea is, you know, blowing you in different directions, there's tides, you know, what are those different anchors you're dropping in the ground to give you that rock solid stability? And the more you can understand, you know, uh, what's blowing you in what direction, and what makes the best anchor, uh, you know, for you, because everyone's a little bit different, um, that's like a superpower. Because, you know, once you have those things dropped, it's really hard to get knocked off your position. Um, so I think a lot of students who are struggling with burnout don't have a sense of their capacity, how stable their boat is. They don't have those anchors down yet. They haven't figured out quite what those anchors are. Um, and so uh, we can definitely help with that at Crimson to help, you know, really put in place some of those different pieces for you and provide that support. But I think uh, over time, you know, you want to try and evolve that sense of those pillars yourself. So that that's really what I do. Uh, and I do have a sense of, and I push myself pretty hard, I do. So at some points, you know, I do feel stressed. And, you know, for sure, it's not like I never feel this way. Um, you know, regularly, I would I would feel quite, you know, wound up on something. Um, but you also want to think about, okay, how do you reset? How do you recognize you're in that state? Bring it down a little bit. Uh, what do you do to kind of put your mind back at ease? Uh, there are also techniques, you know, one needs to develop over time. So, so that, that would be kind of how I would approach it. Um, but I guess touch wood today, I never, I've never really had a period where I felt super burnt out, um, you know, to the point that I'm kind of like frayed and can't keep going. Um, I try and catch myself before I get, you know, anywhere close to that kind of red zone. Hmm. And, and I, I think this is, would be where I branch into actionable goals and how one can approach them. And maybe you can, maybe you can elaborate on how Crimson helps students approach actionable goals, uh, instead of unrealistic goals. How do you differentiate between actionable and unrealistic goals? So I think it starts with data. So at Crimson, we've got more than a million data points of college admissions data on uh, what students are getting into what schools with what activities. So, you know, whether it be GPA, extracurriculars, A-level scores, financial aid needs, target geographies, et cetera. We have our college admissions algorithms. We've got, you know, a credible bank of resources that we've garnered over these years and intel on what works in different geographies. So 
first of all, we're able to really, you know, dispassionately assess where you currently stand. Um, because if you're like mum or dad, you know, you, you obviously want the best for your kid and you're going to see things through rosy tints. It's often hard, even if you're really sharp, to understand your own potential opportunity set um, dispassionately too. We come in, we understand that, you know, in terms of where you're currently standing. And then we think about, okay, what can we do to really optimize the next step? So that involves creating a cascade of goals. What are your grade goals in different subjects? What are your milestones for the summer? What are your milestones for extracurriculars? What are your leadership milestones? Okay, when are you going to do your applications? By what date? What schools are we going to apply for? In what round are we going to apply where? You know, where are we going to put financial aid? Where are we not? All these key decisions, you know, we help uh, put in place clear goals or, or decisions with the, with the student as a team to really put them on the, you know, on the best path possible. So I, I would say there, there are a couple of, of things we do. Um, goal setting really has to be done based on, you know, where you've achieved in the past and, you know, what your potential for growth is. And a good goal is something that is, you know, going to make you hustle to hit it. But fundamentally, it is it is hittable. I think it's, it's challenging to set goals that are just so out of this world uh, and then just swim at them. Because there's this idea that you kind of like aim for the sun and if you miss, you know, you're still in the sky. But I think actually uh, human minds don't work that way. Like people, we need to find that kind of sense of fulfillment and, 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 and micro satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment to keep going. So I'd rather actually set this, you know, uh, growing, uh, I guess, ambition of goals that uh, each step represents doable but challenging milestones. And the student gets more and more and more confidence and kind of ramps up over time. I think I think if you kind of overshoot at the beginning, you know, you can come crashing down, kind of like Icarus, I guess, in the in the, in the famous uh, tragedy. So that that would be you know how I would approach that that framework. Okay, that, I think I have to really go reevaluate. Oh well, not really reevaluate, but I have to go look at some of my goals and take that advice into into account. Yeah, I think just quickly um, on that. I mean, I don't know exactly what your goals are, but you can set really ambitious goals when you go out, say, ten years. Uh, so like in my life, I've got some big ambitious goals, uh, you know, that I, that I have set for longer term stuff, but I think that you need to ground the current state, like what you're going to achieve in the next three, six months on things you can nail, because it's a kind of sense of accountability. If you set a bunch of goals, you keep missing them then the goals become worthless and you and your head know these goals don't mean anything because you keep missing them in your head. So it's important that you maintain bold future goals, but in the short term, you know, you have the actionable piece. So at least you're hitting a significant number of them. So that's kind of how to balance it. Like, I definitely don't think you should abandon the huge big picture goals because, you know, if you're like Elon Musk and you're trying to build literally a company that takes people to Mars, you're not going to get there with cute little goals, you know, one step at a time. You need to have that all-inspiring vision that gets people pumped. But, yeah. you know, day to day, uh, he is extremely pragmatic about, you know, what he needs to do to get there. And so you, you see him switch between big picture goals and that short-term extreme execution focus that, you know, he's known for. And now just to pique my curiosity, I would love to know what a day of work looks like for you. You Number one, studying, uh, you have family. Um, what does that day look like? It's like sort of like you invented the 25th hour, if you can put it like that. <laughs> That's very funny. That, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm going to remember that line. Um, okay. Uh, so let me think about this. Okay. So a typical day for me would involve, uh, I, for example, today I have a number of meetings with some of my students um, that, you know, are currently applying in the next two years, working with them directly. I love to take on some students each year. Um, and, uh, you know, that keeps me really on my toes and close to the student experience. Yeah, so I'm out of this. I love a bunch of internal meetings with my team members, usually different Crimson execs around the world on certain strategic questions. Um, I might have some, I had a meeting earlier today with, with a company that we might look at acquiring or investing in. 
uh, to expand crimson in a certain market in, in a new geography. Um, I had a meeting with some uh, prospective investors that you know are likely to join the crimson team soon um, and help us to expand even more. Um, I'll probably spend a bit of time doing something involving personal learning. It could be reading a book uh, that is in a new era I'm trying to learn. It could be actually doing one of these de degree uh, coursework you know, or, or assignments that I have to do. Um, I might then spend a bit of time uh, with my partner, uh, whether it be getting a nice dinner that's sort of sync, dis, you know, disconnected from everything or going on a walk, something like that. I'll try get in a bit of physical activity, uh, whether it be a run, that Peloton run that I mentioned, just to keep you fresh. Um, make sure that you get some good healthy nutrition in there as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, leave a bit of time for some fun. Maybe I might watch the new um, Minions movie uh, later on today, uh, quite late after all my work is done. So I, I think that that gives you a sense of kind of like a, a bit of a mixture of my day. Um, I try and, uh, you know, pack it full of good stuff. Um, and um, I think uh, one of the kind of accountability mechanisms that I have is that once, you, once you've built an organization, there's lots of regular cadence meetings you have. And so um, those meetings just help things keep moving forwards, moving forwards. And, you know, my job is to keep the organization's momentum, you know, squarely pushing forwards. And so I, I do have that regular cadence, of course, but I try and maintain a bit of space to jump on new opportunities as they come up, because there's always plenty of agile things happening that we need to kind of move and groove to. Yeah. Uh, and that's rather insightful. Um, before we end of this amazing podcast episode that I've thoroughly enjoyed producing with you, what are some of Crimson's focuses to create and to remain the leading ed tech company in the world? That's a great question. So I think one of the things I'm really excited by is Crimson Pathfinder. This is a tool inside the Crimson app where students can upload all their different activities and extracurriculars and get a sense of currently how they're tracking against you know, uh, their goals. So what actual schools will they get into if they apply with their current activities now? And we're adding a lot of intelligence to this, more and more uh, activities, more and more calibration of what points equals what for what candidacy. We're building out features like leaderboards where you can see how you're tracking relative to other kids in your country, which is very valuable because currently it's quite a mystery how you're doing against other students within your country. So I think um, the more we can continue to use a lot of our uh, data and content and scale within the college admissions process to aid our students, the, the better. So that, that's an exciting kind of innovation for us. Secondly, I'm really excited about our online high school, the Crimson Global Academy. You know, I want students anywhere to be able to access an elite quality high school education. So whatever subjects the school offers, doesn't matter because you can do anything you like with Crimson Online. Um, and you can have that physical experience, you know, play some soccer with your friends at school, eat some lunch, but you've got that turbocharged learning experience when you want it for those extra subjects. So I'm really focused on building out more study options, you know, flexible asynchronous options, live class options, uh, self-paced options. Uh, and for more curriculum, more subjects within our online high school. So that, that's definitely a second kind of growth area for us. Um, and I'm, you know, currently uh, definitely exploring some interesting acquisitions to help bring new services to our students. One cool thing happening, uh, you know, we recently in the last year have been launching our virtual internship. So in a couple of days, we start a, an internship with PricewaterhouseCooper, a big four accounting firm. And normally that's like a prestigious thing to work for when you're in university, but through the Crimson Network, our high schoolers can actually get work experience with this company now in high school, which is pretty cool. So things like that, where we can bring novel experiences to our students are also definitely very exciting. Um, so there are a couple of different initiatives top of my head that I'm throwing out there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, also culturally just keeping, you know, the ambition pumping around the organization and continuing to challenge everyone to, to bring their A game to work every day. Yeah, and I'll definitely leave a link to the Crimson Education site um, where you can check it out as well as CGA, Crimson Global Academy, uh, the, site, uh, the site links um, in the show notes. But yeah, it's brilliant to finally hear 
the overview and have a deep dive into your mind, Jamie. It's been really great. Um, now to finally conclude the episode, we have some traditional expandable mind questions and I hope you're ready for them. Uh, they're rapid fire. So question number one, uh, tell me about your three most influential people in your life and how they've impacted you. So my mom, I mentioned her earlier, critical milestone in my early childhood, uh, my thinking on education, my work ethic comes from her. Secondly, Julian Robertson, he's the billionaire founder of Tiger, who, you know, is, is our biggest independent, biggest external shareholder. Uh, he trained me at Tiger, trained me how to do stock market investing, but more than anything, trained me about leadership and about maintaining that competitive spirit, that will to win that, you know, he's really known for. Um, third one would be Chase Coleman, uh, the founder of Tiger Global, who was also mentored by Julian, spun out, created his own venture fund when he was 27, um, or public equity investing and venture fund. He's gone on to build one of the world's great investing franchises in Tiger Global, and he's invested in more unicorn technology companies than anybody else. Um, he has a ferocious work ethic, great competitive spirit, um, super inspirational guy. So that, I'd say these would be my three biggest uh, role models and, and, and sort of mentors, uh, well, not, not so much mentors, but role models in, in life today. Okay. Uh, and second question, if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? It's not too long ago, but yeah. Um, I would have learned more computer science in my undergrad degree. I, I learned a bit, but I think um, uh, that would be very valuable, very useful. Would have um, you know fixed a blind spot that I had to kind of uh, adapt to later on. So I think I would have definitely learned a lot more computer science um, in my um, undergrad years. Uh, I also probably you know would have bought much more Apple stock. Um, it's done pretty well. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I'd say the the computer science would would be a good one. Um, the second thing I would probably have done is I would have spent a bit more time uh, getting to know classmates on campus at Harvard. I, you know, as I said, I made a bunch of good friendships, but I think um, I just went back to my five-year reunion recently and it was so cool to meet everybody and spend a lot of time with them. Um, but I think it would have been even better if I had spent a bit more time on campus running around because I was so focused on what I was up to at Crimson. Um, and, you know, if I could, you know, go to a couple more of those events and stuff, get to know a couple more folks earlier on in the journey, uh, maybe I would have hired some more of them. Maybe I would have, you know, built some more great friendships. Um, fortunately, you know, my, my COO at Crimson, David Freed, legendary guy, I met him over some 2 a.m. economics assignments at Harvard. And, you know, he's been an amazing rock star on the Crimson journey so far. Uh, but yeah, definitely would have spent a bit more time there. Um, so yeah, th there are a couple of ones that come to mind. Yeah. Um, brilliant to hear that from you. Um, if you could have a cup of coffee, are you cup, uh, coffee or tea guy, Jamie? Tea. I, I like English breakfast tea, but I also go for iced lattes. So, um, if you want me to just choose one, Hmm, I'll choose an English breakfast tea. Okay. If you could have an English breakfast tea with any historical figure, who would you choose? That's a really interesting question. It comes from a Stanford supplementary question, actually, for for the university. A historical figure. Hmm. Maybe Winston Churchill during the uh, during world, you know some of the World War uh, World War Two. I think um, is it World War Two World War One with Winston Churchill. Let me see. My history knowledge is weak on this one. World War Two. I think. So um, yeah, I think I think. Uh, meeting him over some English breakfast tea in the middle of World War II, uh, where he was really uh, such a force of leadership uh, during, you know, honestly, a very rugged time in the UK's history. That would have been very interesting. Brilliant. Um, the second guest to actually say Winston Churchill, and I, I have, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable about Winston Churchill, but I've 
are known him for his leadership. So I understand the choice. Now, this is a question from the audience. How many qualifications is too much? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the short answer is uh, one can never have enough uh, qualifications, but um, I think uh, they have diminishing you know, returns, right? So like your undergrad degree from a great school is going to get you, you know, 80% of the way you need to go. You know, the next program you do might, you know, boost you up a, a bit more. Um, so I guess every qualification brings some new value, not just because of the qualification, but because of the learning and content that you, 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 you go through. You need to actually spend time applying all of these learnings, though. Like you can't just sit there acquiring, you know, acquiring more and more knowledge, not doing anything with it. Um, so it's like a fine balance. But I think people should probably err towards being lifelong learners. And I think that, you know, people say that, but like what I actually mean by lifelong learning is you're literally always studying something all the time throughout your life. What I see is a lot of folks will study things until they're like 27 and then they'll never do formal education again. And all their learning will be on the job learning. And I think that's a bit too unstructured in my opinion. So um, yeah, I would, I'm a big advocate for the lifelong learning. And, you know, I guess I'm charting a course doing that right now uh, that, you know, hopefully is inspirational to our Crimson kids around the world. And I'll, I'll report back on how it goes. And when I'm even more programs in, I'll, I'll see if it was good. But right now I would say, you know, the more the merrier. Okay. Um, I, I'm personally inspired by your journey. Um, the, I think the audience is going to be in awe. Uh, so definitely something, somebody to reckon with. Um, and final question, uh, what is your favorite productivity hack? My favorite productivity hack, it's a simple but very effective one. Um, stage one is make sure you have literally nothing scheduled, you know, on a given day for like a seven to eight hour streak. And then step two is to turn off all your notifications on every app, delete every single web, web browser you have. So you only have a single thing open on your laptop. You know, stage three is hide your phone and then make sure nobody disrupts you apart from when you need to eat food. Um, you know, if you're going to get lunch, something like this. And then, and then that go into that deep work zone. You know, that, that's how I really banged out my uh, PhD writing really quickly. That's how I banged out parts of the book really quickly. That's how I have done law school quite efficiently at Yale. Um, you know, I use those sort of deep work phases to really, you know, get through a lot of material quickly. I think in today's age with things like TikTok, notifications, left, right, and center, all these apps really competing for your attention. It's like you versus, you know, AI teams of genius engineers, like you're not going to win that concentration battle. So you have to really architect that environment for which you can be super productive in. So that, that's definitely something that I do when I have that deep work to get through. Brilliant. I, and this has been an amazing podcast episode produced, Jamie. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. I really appreciate your time. It has been amazing. Again, I'm just saying amazing all the time. Um, I am sure that your the audience is in awe uh, sitting around there like with their mouths ga um, gapping open mm -hmm. um, with, about your journey, the advice you've shared. And I personally am really grateful for being able to speak to you, Jamie. The links to Jamie's book will be in the show notes to invest in it. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jamie. Really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you. And I just want to say on my end, uh, amazing job, of, you know, really creating this podcast. It obviously shows your incredible leadership skills to get this off the ground, to have the hustle to recruit different guests around the world. Um, you know, super ambitious stuff. Uh, I don't think I could have pulled it off when I was your age. So uh, I'm really excited for all that is to come in, in your own future. I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to support you at Crimson. And I, I look forward to seeing what epic universities you get into and hopefully playing a role in your exciting adventures beyond that as well. Definitely. Thanks so much, Jamie. Have a good one. Cheers.
To our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Links that were mentioned during this episode are in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a five-star rating and review on your preferred podcast platform. To catch up with the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at expandable underscore mind. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.